What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Hey, Willie. What? You want to stick around much longer here in Cleveland? Why, you want to go? I don't know, yeah, kind of. We should go back tomorrow the next day or something. You know, it's funny. You come someplace new and, and everything looks just the same. Remember going places, Josh? Oh, those were the days. I mean, even no offense to Cleveland, but a trip to Cleveland right now sounds like, you know, a trip to the Bahamas or something. (laughs) You're so right. Richard Edson and John Lurie there in Stranger Than Paradise. Director Jim Jarmusch's breakout indie hit from 1984. This week, we wrap up our 8 from 84 series with Paradise, along with our favorite performances, scenes, and more from the eight, okay, more like 13 movies we watched from that great movie year. That and more. Hello, Cleveland. Hello, Cleveland. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. You know, Josh, just because we call them top five lists doesn't mean I'm only going to put five movies on the list. Mm -hmm. And just because we call a series an eight from 84 retrospective, doesn't mean we're only going to watch eight movies. We covered a lot of ground, and and I'm glad we did. I'm glad we expanded, because I, I think we probably, in my mind, maybe only had one misstep in that whole journey. We'll see. We'll discuss. Mm, blatant misstep, I think. <laughs> maybe. Yes. We will get into that and more with our 8 from 84 awards. Awards I have dubbed the Quizats Heteracts, <laughs> and I didn't get any pushback from you or Dune lover Sam, so mm-hmm. I'm guessing we're good on that front. Well, you knew it had to be something from Dune. I mean, so many great options. I like where you landed. All right. We did watch 13 movies for the 8 from 84 series, including a couple we reviewed as bonus episodes for our supporters over on Patreon. Now, if I look at this whole list, and of course we will share that full list later, there were probably two or three movies back in 1984 that... I would have labeled masterpieces. I would have had no credibility, but a grade school me would have thought this was the pinnacle of cinema. Wise nine or 10-year-old, okay. (laughs) Exactly. I've evolved hopefully a little bit. We'll see where those movies now fall and whether or not they are overtaken by other more formidable pieces of cinema, Josh. Those awards and more later in the show. But first, one of the smaller films of 1984, but one that launched a prolific and still rewarding career, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. Yeah. Oh, hello, Aunt Lottie. Don't speak to me in Hungarian, please. No, I haven't heard from them, not for 10 years. Yeah, I got you a letter. Speak English, please. Yeah, my little cousin, Ava. Yeah, I know. She's going to come here and she's going to stay overnight. When is she coming? Today? Straight from Budapest today? Oh, no. No, I never agreed to that. I can't possibly babysit for her for 10 days. Oh, look, it's disrupting my whole life. I don't even consider myself a part of the family. Do you understand? 
I don't know if Jim Jarmusch is the kind of filmmaker who can be put on a map. His work is far too rangy and idiosyncratic for that. But 1984 Stranger Than Paradise is the movie that essentially put him on the radar for cinephiles. The final film in our 8 from 84 series, Adam, and Jarmusch's second feature, Stranger Than Paradise won the Best New Director Prize at Cannes and introduced Jarmusch's deadpan minimalism to American indie audiences. A hangout movie, even when it hits the road, Stranger Than Paradise begins in New York City, where the aggressively assimilated Willie, he's played by John Lurie and believes strongly in TV dinners, gets a surprise visit from his Hungarian cousin, Eva, played by Esther Belint. Eva is far more curious than Willie about this strange new world, and so she eventually inspires him, along with Willie's up-for-anything friend, Eddie, played by Richard Edson, to leave his drab apartment first heading to Cleveland, and then Florida. But as they cross the country, do any of them ever really discover anything? Stranger Than Paradise really takes place in Jarmusch's America, an America askew, where only Screamin' Jay Hawkins gets airtime, and urban landscapes have the shimmer of Tom DiCello's black-and-white cinematography. This, plus the long pauses and the lack of narrative urgency, made Stranger Than Paradise and Jarmusch right at the start an acquired taste— now, we're both on the record as being fans of Jarmusch and this movie. So, as there isn't much suspense there, Adam, let me start with a more specific question. Of the three main characters who we spend so much time with, Willie, Ava, and Eddie, who would you most want to take a road trip with and why? <laughs> I love this question because you know how so many people the last few years have lost friendships or are in conflict with family members because of politics. Mm -hmm. Well... This could be the Jarmish judgment, a little test to know whether you should start or continue a close relationship with someone like maybe even, I don't know, doing a weekly movie show together. <laughs> because if your answer and your ranking here is anything other than Ava, <laughs> Eddie, Willie. Uh-huh. I'm going to suggest there's something seriously wrong with you. <laughs> and I'm going to give credit to our producer, Sam, here. Aunt Lottie might even slot ahead of Willie. Oh, Aunt Lottie is great. <laughs> I mean I, I, I mean, I wouldn't mind a card game with her. Well, she's good at cards. She's going to beat you. That's, sure. I suppose, a negative. But she's going to at least pack some sandwiches. And you know you're going to get some soup and a thermos for the trip. And you will have to deal with her also nagging Ava the whole time, probably. But yeah, I think she probably does fit in just above John Lurie's character here. And we could talk about the case against Willie and Eddie here. Eddie, who is... I'll admit, mostly endearing, but I'd rather make the case for Ava. Mm. She appreciates great art. Maybe she's a little hyper-focused in her appreciation <laughs> on her main man, <laughs> Screamin' Jay Hawkins, but at least she seems to be into music and good music. And I mean, anyone who will provide their own soundtrack as they walk down the street, that's, that's cool with me. She also displays at least a modicum of ambition, or as you put it, curiosity. She has a job. She wants to go places and try new things, unlike Willie and Eddie here, who, besides deciding to hit the road in the first place, mostly just want to sit around or spend their time cheating and gambling. She's also, and maybe this is most important to me anyway, she's thoughtful and compassionate. Even after the guys abandon her, they, they don't even leave her a note. And they put all three of them, including her, in a precarious position by at first losing all of their money at the dog track, when the role is reversed, instead of just being angry and resentful, she leaves them a note 
and she leaves them money. So I'd much rather be stuck in a car on a long trip with someone who has all of those qualities. So you didn't fall for my trap. I, I was really hoping you would say <laughs> Willie. <laughs> we well, could... I was expecting, Josh, if anybody could pull out the contrarian take here and start into a diatribe about why Willie is really the uh-huh. unsung hero of this movie, it would be you. So blow my mind. Oh, I wish. I wish. I don't know where I would start, though, because he's just so thoroughly annoying from the very beginning, as he's meant to be, and not in a way where mm-hmm. you want to turn away from him. I mean, he's fascinating, too, to see this guy. I think it does come down to the assimilation thing, right? This is mm-hmm. how we understand if he may very well have been born in the U.S. For all we know, we don't get a lot of the background on Willie. He's certainly for sure been there longer than Ava. We know that. And the intensity with, with which he has embraced, you know, the hat he wears, which, which Eddie copies, you get a sense, or maybe it's the other way around, but this look that he adopts. Um, and again, the TV dinners and, and the sports and just the way like television kind of defines um, his social life. He's watching Mm -hmm. cartoons at one point, sports at another point. He he has just assimilated all in, um, in kind of some of the, you know, maybe more insipid elements of American culture. And he has no curiosity that that's that's the problem with him right i mean when he gets to cleveland he just does the same thing he just sits mm-hmm. in aunt lottie's front room he, he doesn't really know what to do even right. though he he says he claims i just want to get out of here and see something different right that's i think that's what he says when they head to cleveland um but he doesn't really see anything different when he goes there and it's all on him and and eddie's observation you can come someplace new and everything looks the same well that's on you guys <laughs> right mm-hmm. that's on the two of them so definitely it's Ava. I think I'd do fine on a road trip with Eddie, to be honest with you. I mean, he's amiable. He's up for anything. Yes. He's, you know, he's not really going to cause any trouble. I don't I don't think that um, he's going to add much to the trip necessarily either. But yeah, for me, it's, it's Ava, as you said it, um, the curiosity um, and just the fact that she sees opportunity. She sees excitement um, mm-hmm. in the music, as you said, in these these streets that she walks down. She wants to explore the streets of the neighborhood, even though Willie warns her against some of them. Um, and so I love her honesty, too. You know, you mentioned her compassion, which I think is right, but also her honesty. The way right from the start she says to Willie, I think this game is really stupid when he's trying to explain football to her or the mm-hmm. dress that he gets her. I think it's kind of ugly. Don't you? No, I bought it. Why don't you try it on? I don't really wear this style. You, you know, you come here, you should dress like people dress here. I'll try it on later. She doesn't want to hurt his feelings, but the fact that she's so in tune with who she actually is. Yes. That unlike him, who tries too hard to assimilate, she... She stays true to who she is. Right. That's it. Is that it's not that he's giving her a gift or, you know, even thinks this dress independently of all other context would look nice on her. It's that it would help her supposedly fit in, even though I, I don't know if it would really. I agree with mm-hmm. her. It's, it's really ugly. I don't know that it would it's help putting her, her do into that. a role. Yeah. It's putting her into a role. Totally. Even as he's someone who doesn't really seem to fit any role in right. society. So and I think the performance here is so good by Belint, too, is this is her debut, um, which is really impressive. She has the right. It's kind of a spaced out 
an experience as this newcomer that matches well with the movie's tone. Um, and definitely Jarmusch is working in his own unique register that no other filmmakers work in, yet they're both, despite being distinct, they're kind of in sync with each other. I feel like the movie is so in sync with Ava, um, even though Balint is bringing her own presence to this as well. So so it's really an incredible performance here and why, yeah, I mean, she's she's got to be the obvious answer. Yeah, you're right that the movie doesn't explicitly state whether or not he's an emigre, whether or not he came here from Hungary, though I think almost by his defiance, especially when he says, I'm as American as you are to Eddie at one point, it actually suggests maybe he's protesting too much. And of course, he speaks the language as fluently as he does. I think he is trying so hard to be, quote unquote, American, that he actually kind of doesn't end up being anything. Mm-hmm. He's stuck sort of in a in a limbo, in a kind of dreamlike state. And maybe I go to that word because as I was preparing for this show, I was finishing up my 8 from 84 awards after I saw this. And I don't want to spoil one of my winners, but I couldn't help but make a connection here. We'll see if this resonates with you at all, Josh, or sounds familiar. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. Mm-hmm. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was, right? I mean, this is a character going through life almost like it's a dream, kind of floating with no real purpose or awareness. And Byrne, to be sure, was writing about middle-class America, distinctly, I think, from people like Willie and Eddie, who are kind of off the grid, so to speak. But the line that really unlocked the movie for me even before funneling it through talking heads was eddie's line when they're in cleveland and they've been there for a few days and maybe the course is being played out and he says you know it's funny you come to someplace new and everything just looks the same yeah and the way jarmish and as you said tom DeCillo here with that grainy black and white 16 millimeter cinematography render New York and Cleveland and Florida, it's pretty amazing because you have three uniquely different locations in different parts of the country with different representative landmarks and identifiers. And I suppose we could talk about different types of people. And yet here on screen, they are all the same, aren't they? Mm. They're, They're bleak, they're barren, they're uninviting. There's something almost dystopic about this America even though it couldn't be more removed from science fiction, right? But, you know, Cleveland's colder and sure there's some snow and Florida has some palm trees and we maybe see a little water. Otherwise, these three places are indistinguishable from each other, almost, and mostly indistinguishable for these three characters, more importantly. And I think that is something that is maybe uniquely American as you travel from region to region and city to city. There's a conversation early on when I think Ava is first there in New York and she wants the Chesterfields and she says, can I get those in Cleveland? And he says, yeah, yeah, you can get them in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. She says, they taste good there like here. <laughs> uh-huh. And and he says, he's kind of shocked, but he says, yeah, it's the same Chesterfields all over America. Yeah. So on the plus side, cigarettes taste the same wherever you go in America. We're, we're really good at getting the vices, right? Quality you can, control. You can, you can, that's it. You can appreciate and indulge in those same vices. On the minus side, what does either place offer uniquely? What what opportunities actually exist for any of these people who are specifically these people a little lost in any of these places? And I think to go back to what you were saying in your setup, do any of them actually discover anything? 
I do feel like that's what the movie in some way is probably trying to truly reckon with this idea, this idea of America, whatever that idea is, and the notion that maybe what you discover is that there's nothing truly to discover. And then what? Yeah, I, I think it's easy to have that experience in America. Is what I would say. And the great thing about uh, Jarmusch as a filmmaker, which we would see as his career went on, is he is interested. This is why he's remained an indie filmmaker. He is interested in looking in the nooks and crannies and the byways um, to discover what America does have to offer. Um, but it's not going to be, you know, at the the chain superstore. And really, my goodness, I mean, when, when I heard that Eddie line about everything seeming the same, no matter where you are, he had no idea. I mean, he had no idea in 1984 what was coming. Chesterfields, mm-hmm. how about, you know, a Starbucks at every exit along the highway? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and so this has this has only become more a defining attribute of American life. Um, you talk you're so right when you talk about the black and white cinematography as being this connective tissue among the locales. And you know what I, I think, as you were saying, that also works that way is this technique where each scene, there's a cut to black, and we sit on that black screen for a couple of seconds, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is between almost every other one of these extended scenes that are within one room or one location. We'll sit in that darkness for a few seconds. And that happens in New York, it happens in Cleveland, and it happens in Florida. And that as well is unifying their experience, you know, in, in this aesthetic way that you're talking about too. So it kind of flattens them and and gives us the same feeling no matter where we are. I also, what I really liked about that technique is the way it contains each of those scenes differently than a movie shot more conventionally would. So you almost mm-hmm. feel as if you sat with it as you would a still photograph and you could observe the details a little bit more and and soak up things that you might not otherwise. And what's so fascinating about that is it's not really extending the time we spent in those scenes. I think, as I said at the beginning, Jarmusch does tend to have longer scenes and he'll allow them to play out with pauses. Um, A lot of times it's so that we can finally get to a very deadpan joke at the end of a scene that, you know, the previous eight minutes were set up. Um, all of you know the the time spent in those sequences has not been extended by this technique, but it feels like it has because mm-hmm. we're given those couple of seconds to immerse ourselves in them or, or to process, you know, really to think about what we just saw. And uh, that was something I did not remember from my previous viewing, and I think really appreciated this second time around is what that added to the experience. Well, you talked about photographs every time we cut to black it's almost like a shutter closing instead of opening right back up we linger for a little bit and when the shutter reopens and we have some new image to look at we're in a different place it's a different tableau and it is kind of a tableau right because the camera is mostly still in all of these instances but that's where i also feel like it comes back to that dreamlike quality and i don't want to make it too literal because i don't think jarmish means it this literal but None of the individual vignettes are really long enough to qualify for me as, I suppose, truly slow cinema or kind of transcendental cinema. But it is as if you're kind of closing your eyes. And then when you reopen, you're waking up in exactly the same place with the same people doing mostly the same thing. Right. And so each each vignette becomes a variation on monotony. And actually, it, it drew me back to one of our one of our past marathons and 
I see the similarity in a lot of ways, I think, between Jarmusch and Roy Anderson. Mm. There's, there's something very similar to the way Jarmusch captures these situations and the way Anderson does in terms of those tableaus, in terms of the stillness, right? And also in terms of kind of the, the drab dreariness of, of everyday life. But occasionally here, you get something kind of remarkable. Even for me, something like the opening shot with the the jet taking off in the distance as we look at Ava on the ground. There's something kind of startling about that. And the shot where oh, she- Oh, it's, it's beautifully you know, composed. It is beautiful, yeah. right? But how about the composition when she comes out of work? And it's that Build-A-Burger kind of stereotypical American burger place or hot dog stand, whatever you want to call it. And yet something about it with the the neon light that you can barely see, really, in this case, because it's black and white. But you see it glowing just enough that it almost feels like a spaceship. Again, it's something almost science fiction amidst this landscape. And I suppose the neon lighting does make me think of another connection I at least wanted to point out here, which is we started this marathon with a road trip movie in Starman. We're ending it with a road trip movie in Stranger Than Paradise. And along the way, bonus content, we watched another amazing road trip movie dealing with, I think, a lot of the same questions as this one, Paris, Texas. And just an interesting connection there is that I saw somewhere today that Jarmish actually made this film coming out of film school and he basically was spurred to do it because of a gift of 40 minutes of leftover 16 millimeter film stock from Vim Vendors. So there is huh. there is a tie between those two filmmakers, maybe even those two films. But that sameness, that, that issue this movie seems to kind of be wrestling with, it's funny that even when Eddie appears on screen for the first time, you're like... How did they find a clone of Willie? Right, you know, totally. He, he shows up and he's got the same <laughs> nose and he's got the same hair and kind of unconventional face overall. And his build is even the same, you know, and, and these are guys, they're, they're driving this old car. They're wearing hats that don't seem to really make sense. They, they are men completely out of time. Yeah, part of it, too, is they're trying to, as we were saying before, they're trying to fit something that is just off a little bit. I think their look mm -hmm. now or, you know, maybe like five, ten years ago would, would have been the hipster look. But I don't think in 84 it was really no. a look, you know, of any sort. It, it's what Willie in particular thinks he should look like mm -hmm. as this American guy that he's envisioned himself. Oh, and you, you mentioned their faces. I mean, Richard Edson's face is just... So it's one that you can just get lost in because it is so interesting. It's a little exaggerated. I know, I think it was Sam and Slack was comparing it to De Niro, right? Robert De Niro a little bit, but it's kind of like an exaggerated <laughs> De Niro um, in this fascinating way. And he's yeah. just such, to bring him in and make this more of a, um, a trio, you know, just adds another element to the dynamic that I think is really crucial that shot of them the three of them and actually i think ava's on a date at that point there's another guy in the movie theater and right. again not slow cinema but it's a long single shot of the four of them and watching richard edson's face as eddie is reacting in pleasure to the movie <laughs> is just so enjoyable and i think that circles back to you know what you were talking about adam with these little dollops of um I, I don't know what you would call them, just maybe happiness or, or joy is probably too strong of a word that we get here. I think that does distinguish it from something like the work of Roy Anderson, which I agree the filmmaking is somewhat similar. Um, I can see totally what you're going for there, but mm -hmm. there's also, I, I don't think, 
any of Jarmusch's films that I've seen, maybe Dead Man, but I, I don't think any of them give in to the same level of despair that we get from Roy Anderson. And that's because mm. Jarmusch is always finding um, something to help counter. And I think that's yeah. part of the role here of um, the Screaming Jay Hawkins song. I, I was put just a spell say, on you, right? At least it's, there's an escape there, that, right? It's there. And it's not even just the music, but it's how Ava responds to it. The fact that Willie comes home at one time just to find her dancing by herself, listening to it. You know, there's there's a little bit of a reprieve. I, I guess that's the better word for what what um the movie offers is this occasional reprieve from what otherwise I think that's why this movie doesn't feel despairing to watch, even though these guys are kind of like on a dead end track and Mm -hmm. Ava, you know, you worry like what is going to happen to her? Is she just going to get lost in this new country? But it never really feels that despairing to me. You're kind of more bemused by them and you don't fear for them. I think it's because of the the respite that, um, that we get in little touches like the song. Yeah, I think that's fair, that it doesn't feel quite as despairing. There's a certain acceptance of the way things are, I suppose, in Jarmusch's work and in this film. And you do kind of look for the little bits of joy and happiness where you can find them. For Jarmusch, of course, finding those bits sometimes occurs in cinema. And I know you caught this as well because it was in your letterbox quip, but the joke when they're looking at horses and they land on Tokyo story. And oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I Googled it just to make sure. And you could imagine, of course, watching this film that Ozu was a reference point and an influence for Jarmusch, but actually in 2002, or actually, I think it was 2012 when he did his sight and sound directors poll, he listed Tokyo story as his number two favorite movie of all time. So that's a very, very deliberate reference there. And I will also say in my reference to Roy Anderson, I'm very aware that songs from the second floor, for example, came out in the early 2000s. So if anybody was influencing the other, it's Jarmusch influencing Anderson, of course, and and not the other way around. One last little bit of trivia, because I was curious watching the movie and particularly that line where he says to Eddie, I'm as American as you are. They're getting close to Cleveland, and I have no idea what we're actually seeing on screen in this moment. I don't know where it is or what it is meant, if anything, to signify. But I was looking at the landscape out the window as they go, right? And you're seeing all of these kind of steeples, you know, churches that seem very Eastern European that do not do not at all seem Midwest. So it's, it's appropriate in that moment, it seemed to me anyway, that they would be having that conversation right then and there the closer they're getting to cleveland but also the closer to it feeling like like hungary it's a weird kind of sensation and i looked it up you know why cleveland was there a reason that it's cleveland and it turns out that wouldn't be an accident if that really was what was dotting the landscape there was such an influx of hungarians into cleveland at one time that it was the city with the second largest hungarian population after budapest okay so well that's an impressive that's why it's happening there yeah, yeah. and that's an impressive bit of i don't know what you would call it like car blocking 
because the moment you're talking about, it's very intentional. They do discuss, I think Eddie even makes a crack, like, you know, is he asks Willie, I believe, like, is this what Hungary looks like? Yes. You know, yeah, be, because like of those buildings that are passing outside the window. So it, exactly as the camera is capturing them outside the window, that topic comes up, which and it ties in exactly with some of this stuff we're talking about. So, yeah, for for, you know, a relatively low budget uh, indie film, that's a pretty impressive bit of orchestration there to get all that to come together. Stranger Than Paradise is currently available to rent on most platforms and is currently playing in its Criterion edition over on the Criterion channel. I did notice this as well. Didn't have a chance to listen to it, but the Criterion channel also has a director's commentary edition of the film. So you get to hear not only Jarmish, but you get to hear Eddie with Richard Edson nice. talk about the movie that was recorded in 1996. There are some other extras as well. In Jarmish style, we're going to dial down our performances when we come back and play Massacre Theater. Plus, we've seen a lot from 1984 over the past several months. What was the best? We'll announce the Quizach Hatteracks, our 8 from 84 awards. Stay with us. I put a spell on you. Because you're mine. Stop the things you do. <laughs> What's up? That's from the trailer for Cartoon Saloon's Wolfwalkers, which is currently playing in limited release before coming to Apple TV Plus in December. Cartoon Saloon is the animation studio behind The Red Winner, Song of the Sea, and the Oscar-nominated Secret of Kells. A couple weeks back here on the show, Josh, we did our top five questions about the fall-ish movie season, and one of yours was, will Wolfwalkers or Soul, the new Pixar movie that's coming out, overtake Weathering With You? as my favorite animated film of the year. You did just catch up with Wolfwalkers. Is it your new favorite animated movie of the year? It's got a shot. Yeah, it's it's really strong in ways that I expected, having seen and really liked those other Tom Moore films and ways that were kind of surprising. The story is a, a fun mixture of a lot of familiar things, but also um, I think does end up offering something unique all of its own. Basically, it follows a girl whose father, this is 1650 Ireland, they live in this fortress of a town, and the father is the hunter for um, the Lord Protector who runs this town, and he's basically charged with eradicating the wolves in the forest nearby. She is, um, you know, she's got her own crossbow. She's wants to follow in his footsteps, but in the woods, she does meet a wolfwalker. So this is a girl who, while her body is sleeping, um, she takes the form of a wolf and prowls in the woods and her pack is, you know, in danger of being killed off because of this. So um, you can see here, of course, there's werewolf mythology at play, um, a lot of Irish history, probably more than I'm familiar with, I'm certain. I mean, I've already been talking to people on Letterboxd and stuff who are bringing in other elements of Irish history they know that they picked up on in the film. But also this one reminded me more than 
other of Moore's stuff of Hayao Miyazaki. And um, particularly, I think, My Neighbor Totoro, which might be, might be my favorite um, in some of the characters and, um, again, just how this this story develops. But like I said, it's its, it's its own thing. The geometric patterns that Moore and Cartoon Saloon kind of specialize in, that's all here. There are really beautiful moments where they also adopt this triptych set up for the screen. So it's almost like a a comic book or a graphic novel depicting some of the action. But there's a lot of movement here too that felt new to me. Um, The wolf pack itself kind of becomes its own entity and blurs in with the landscape in interesting ways. Um, So this is... This is just a, a wonder, another one. I mean, they're mm. they're really doing some amazing work um, out of this studio and more in particular. And so, yeah, as it comes becomes more available on streaming services, I would highly recommend checking out Wolf Walkers. Can't wait to catch up with it. It is currently playing in limited release, as we said, and it comes to Apple TV Plus on December 11th. Next week here in the United States, of course, it's Thanksgiving. It's a holiday that will look a lot different for many people this year, including for us. But we're going to uphold the Thanksgiving tradition here on Film Spotting. We are going to do our Golden Brick Roundup. The Film Spotting Golden Brick is, of course, our annual award for the best film by a new or emerging filmmaker. It used to be called our Overlooked Film of the Year Award, and that's still Probably mostly applies, Josh, but we really are looking at the movie that we appreciated the most from a new director or a new-to-us director, someone really showing a distinct personal vision and artistic ambition with this film. And next week, we plan to talk through our list of 2020 nominees. It is an ever-growing list, Josh. Yeah, it's a crowded field of of really good stuff. So we'll probably, is the plan to kind of narrow that down on next week's show to our finalists, which then listeners get to vote on and also friends of the show. Um, Is that where we're going to be at next week? I think that's right. I know that what we typically like to do is definitely lay out all the nominees. So every film that makes the short list. And then ideally we would get it down to those finalists. I'm a little bit nervous that there's one or two or three titles. I don't know that I'll fit in before next week that you never know could end up being finalists. But I also know that if we had to name finalists right now, we've got a pretty good list of three to five titles. Yeah, I would agree. I I think our overall list is strong, but I, for me, at least there are some tiers um, with a handful that are up at the top there. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if you, I don't think you've seen The Vast of Night yet. Is that right? No. And I definitely plan to watch that. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that's the one um, that if you have to prioritize, not just because, you know, I did like it. There are probably others, to be honest, I'd like more, but um, I know some friends of the show we've been talking to feel really strongly about it. I've heard a lot of people who love it as the year has gone on. It definitely has that distinct vision, filmmaking vision we look for. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'd, I'd suggest uh, putting that one at the top of your list. Well, as you said, we do get votes from other members of the extended, what we have called in the past, the film spotting family that included pre Patreon, the other podcasters that were in our network, Matt and Allison from film spotting SVU. And even though that show doesn't exist anymore, we of course still give them a vote and we love their insights. And then we also have the four hosts of the next picture show, Michael Phillips, a key member 
of the show. He also gets to weigh in. Our producer, Sam, gets a vote. Our listeners get a vote. So that's why we want to go through these list of nominees. We want to do this special every year so you can definitely catch up with any films that you need to because you're going to get an equal vote to me or Josh or Sam ultimately when you vote over at filmspotting.net when we post the finalists. And speaking of the film spotting family, maybe our patrons should get a separate Unique vote, Josh. Kind of yeah. VIPs here. Why not give them a chance to weigh in as well? So we'll have to give that some discussion. Also, next week, we will share the results from the current film spotting poll question asking you who made the best 1980s directing debut. Our not sufficient but large list of candidates were these, Josh. Jim Henson for The Great Muppet Caper, Michael Mann for Thief, Sam Raimi for The Evil Dead. Those all came out in 1981, interestingly. Here are the other options. Amy Heckerling for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Rob Reiner for This is Spinal Tap, Coen Brothers, Blood Simple, Spike Lee for She's Gotta Have It, and then finally Steven Soderbergh for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And we will give you the other option as well. Yeah, there are so many other candidates. We mentioned a bunch of them last week when we unveiled this poll question. And if you want to do some homework and write in one of those candidates, we'd love to hear it. Vote now and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. And we talked about the power ranking of 80s directors, a top five we were possibly going to do this week. We have pushed it off. I think a good connection and a good time to do it, Josh, would be when we are about to unveil the final list of candidates, the final 64 or, you know, 76 or 80, again, overstuffing things as we like to do here on Film Spotting, the candidates for the Film Spotting Madness Best Film of the 1980s. We've done the 2010s, the 2000s, the 1990s, the 80s are our next decade and that will start next year it's a march madness style tournament so we'll probably get to that preview in february sometime yeah that makes sense it'll it'll put us in the mind space we need to be to to make those crucial votes in madness yeah that 80s directing debut poll is available for you to vote in now at filmspotting.net we of course love to give away free things to listeners whenever we have the chance and we've got some streaming links to offer you for the new film Echo Boomers. It's available right now to buy or rent on digital. Chicago's own Michael Shannon, a beloved actor here on Film Spotting, stars in this thriller about a criminal operation made up of rebellious college grads who steal from the rich and give back to themselves, Josh. It also stars Patrick Schwarzenegger, Alex Pettifer, Gillis Geary, and Leslie Ann Warren. When was the last time you saw Leslie Ann Warren on screen? I, it's it's been a while, but back to that plot synopsis. That's just stealing, right? That's that's just okay, when you yeah, steal from I the think, rich and and give back to your. Yeah. Okay, I, I just want to make sure I wasn't missing something. I think that's how it works. If you would like a chance at one of those streaming links, you want to see Echo Boomers for free. Just email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Put Echo Boomers in the subject line, and all you got to do. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard, though. Actually, it is. Tell us your favorite. Michael Shannon performance. Again, Echo Boomers is available to buy or rent. Right now, it's rated R from Paramount Pictures. We also want to highlight the newest pairing that's going on over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's a really good one. Part one of their Family Feud double feature is going to be The Ice Storm, the Ang Lee film from 1997. They're going to pair that with The Nest, which is the latest from Sean Durkin. 
we reviewed this Adam a couple of weeks ago. I know when we got when it got a small theatrical release, and we both really liked it. Spent a lot of time talking about the performances by Jude Law and Carrie Coon, who I don't know, maybe both of them, as we're getting to year end awards talk, Adam. At least for our picks, for our voting, maybe both of them will get votes from us. These are, of course, two period family dramas, not in the long distant past, but the recent past, which is partly why they're being paired on the next picture show. Genevieve Kosky, one of the hosts there, notes that we are now two additional decades removed from the Ice Storm 70s setting than we were Mm. when the movie came out. More perspective. Yeah, that's, uh, wow, kind of depressing. The Nest, yeah, has been playing in limited release. It's currently available to rent via VOD, so you can check it out. I would highly recommend it. Along with Genevieve, your NPS hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, and Scott Tobias. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. Now, of course, time doesn't make any sense anymore. You said we talked about The Nest maybe a couple of weeks ago. Would you believe that was two months ago? Back in September, we reviewed would, The Nest, Josh. I would believe that. <laughs> Film spotting number 793. If you would like to hear that conversation and all of our praise, especially for Carrie Coon. One way that you can support the show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For a mere $5 a month, you get a lot of extras, but maybe the two biggest and best. You get monthly bonus episodes, and November's is coming soon. A listener choice. Top five turkeys we love. Movies that maybe didn't do well at the box office, but definitely got crushed by critics. Don't have great reputations, but we adore or at least have some high level of like for Josh. So we haven't recorded that yet, but I'm, like, I'm excited for it. I like that phrase, high level of like. I think, I think that's Why very not? accurate. We'll probably spend a little time explain exactly what we mean by turkeys and what we mean by love, just because this was harder harder than I thought to identify yeah. these. Yeah, just in time for Thanksgiving, we've got the turkeys we love. We also offer you monthly trivia spotting. So this is exclusive for film spotting family members on Patreon, the opportunity to buy tickets to play trivia with us and a bunch of special guests. We just had trivia spotting for The Voyage Home last Friday, November 13th, and You didn't win. I didn't win. Sam didn't win. But man, Griffin Newman from the Blank Check podcast just led his team to a resounding victory. Everyone was singing his praises as a captain. It was kind of brutal how he was running roughshod over some of these categories. And I'm, you know, I'm glad I got that win under my belt because if Griffin is going to keep showing up, I think his team is always going to have this thing pretty well mm-hmm. sealed up. I'm trying to remember, did he play the, the, I don't remember if he played the week that my team through no effort of my own happened to win. We might've dodged a bullet there, but going forward, he he's going to be tough to beat. I think he did. Okay. Yeah. He had an off week the time you won, Josh. There you go. And I'm going to say, I also had an off week apparently because oh, sure. you won right. it. So We'll see how Griffin does. We are definitely having him back, and I think I can tease this. Not only will Griffin join us for our next trivia spotting, but the two friends will be there. The pair, his blank check co-host, David Sims, also going to be there on the 11th. Yeah, it will be fun, and we'll see who rounds out the lineup, but our last event also included pop culture happy hours Aisha Harris, 
Mikado Murphy from the New York Times. The next picture shows Keith Phipps, Chris Klemek, a contributor to Pop Culture Happy Hour and elsewhere. A beardless Michael Phillips showed up. Yeah. Almost didn't recognize him. That was kind of alarming. It was. And longtime friend of the show, Brett Merriman, filled in at the last minute for our PA, Kat Sullivan. We thank him and all of our guests and everyone who participated. Another great time, honestly. And we can't wait for the next installment. Trivia Spotting 5, subsequent movie film trivia <laughs> will happen on Friday, December 11th. Tickets will go on sale soon. And if that sounds like fun, you can have a chance of buying tickets. You do have to be a Patreon supporter, though. So go to patreon.com slash film spotting to do just that. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Why shouldn't we look at ourselves up there? Who cares about the fifth Earl of Bastrop and Lady Higginbottom and, and who killed Nigel Grinch Gibbons. I could feel my butt getting sore already. Exactly, Charlie. You understand what I'm saying a lot more than some of these literary types because you're a real man. And I could tell you some stories. Sure you could. And yet many writers do everything in their power to insulate themselves from the common man, from where they live, from where they trade, from where they fight and love and converse and... and, So naturally, their work suffers and regresses into empty formalism and, well, I'm spouting off again, but to put it in your language, the theater becomes as phony as a $3 bill. Well, I guess that's a tragedy right there. (laughs) That was John Goodman as Charlie Meadows and John Turturro as Barton Fink in 1991's Barton Fink, of course, written and directed by the Coen brothers. Also on that show, along with that massacre, our fall movie preview, plus the final film and our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon and the Marathon Awards. So, Josh, why that scene from Barton Fink? There are reasons. Here's Albert Malafront from Pasadena. Massacre Theater this week was definitely Barton Fink, and I personally thought it was the best Adam performance I've heard. Sorry, Labyrinth. Wow. How about that? <laughs> why Barton Fink? Is it because Fink and Mank were both New York-born writers who relocated to Hollywood in the golden era to write screenplays while struggling in the creative process? I don't know. Mank! (laughs) You do know, Albert. That was where our heads were, certainly. Tom Labarth says the tie-in is simple. Blood Simple, of course, the 80s movie that marked the Coen Brothers' debut was mentioned as a poll option. Strangely enough, the Wachowski's Speed Racer, a movie failure you champion poll option, was another likely unintentional tie-in as it features John Goodman as Pops Racer, a far cry from his role as Madman Munt, the recipient of the phony populism of Totoro's Fink. Okay, so John Goodman played Pops, not not the monkey. Now, I'm glad we cleared that up. Here's Josh Ashen Miller from L.A. First Order Connection, Barton Fink was the Coen brothers' go-to-old Hollywood. Adam and Josh talked about the upcoming Mank, which sounds like it will be David Fincher goes to old Hollywood. Second Order Connection, Adam and Josh also talked about Sean Connery's starring role in The Man Who Would Be King. John Goodman starred in King Ralph. <laughs> Okay, Josh. Yeah, our heads weren't really there, but we do appreciate any chance we get to utter the words King Ralph here on Film Spotting. I think that was a a QAnon submission we got there from Josh. (laughs) 
Finally, Brooke Walworth in Salt Lake City, Utah says, I finally knew one. I love that you renamed John Goodman's Charlie Meadows, the man who could tell stories, but Barton Fink never gives him the time to speak, to Walter, the man who never shuts up about himself, no matter how many times the dude tells him to. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. We did rename him Walter, thinking about the great Walter Subchak from another Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. We got a fair number of entries this week, Josh, so I want you to reach into the kind of brimming film spotting hat and pick out the winner. The winner is J.P. Ward from Scottsdale, Arizona. Congratulations, J.P. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. What happened to the canola line? You're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his canola. Look, I made a mistake, all right? It didn't make any difference anyway. Hey, I'm letting it go. But don't say it doesn't matter. Every line matters. We move on now to an unusually depressing massacre theater. This is supposed oh, to be man. fun, usually, Josh. Going to put a damper on the rest of the show. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how fun this is going to be for us or for our listeners. We will note that... We're going to change the name, as we like to do, and it should be a hint, though it also could throw people a little bit, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, your first thought is going to probably be in the wrong direction, but if you if you stick with it, this will lead you to the title. I, I have no sense of how big or well-known of a movie this is. I, I feel like not that well-known, but at the same time, it's also like the most obvious pick for Massacre Theater for this show. Yeah. For this show. Right? Okay. Well, now you're just handing it to him on a platter. That's fine. I, I was going to say <laughs> that it obviously does tie in with a subject on this show and also with reality. That works too. Okay. Enough <laughs> clues. Who you want to play? I, I think I want to do the heavy lifting of the accent, Josh. Ooh, I'm excited. That's good because I'm feeling I'm feeling a little tired, and the other part, yeah. <laughs> so you can relate. I think I can relate. <laughs> we'll see if I can pull this off. All right, so that means I you definitely start. can't. I but will give you the action. We're gonna go for it. And action. Kane, you're thinking that my face is old and tired. That while I talk of power, I am unable to prevent the decay of my own body. But the individual is only a cell, Cain, and the weariness of the cell is the vigor of the organism. You'll fail. Why? It's impossible. Hatred and fear have no life. Why is hate less vital than love? I don't know, but somehow you'll fail. Something will defeat you. Life will defeat you. And, and scene. scene. <laughs> so you, uh, I didn't go for any kind of accent so much as just really soothing. If you weren't already yeah. going to sleep, I put you to sleep. <laughs> I was going to say that 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 was comforting. The, the actual scene is a little more doom laden, but you well, were very soothing. I feel better. Thank you. Well, I think I think that's how evil's really going to come. It's mm. going to be soothing and comforting and really sinister, Josh. You're so probably, hopefully, probably right. Hopefully that came through. I'm thinking most people are imagining that you were just doing a Mark Hamill in like Return of the Jedi when he's on yeah. Dagobah. Mm. Were you yes. channeling your Luke Skywalker? I must have been. Yeah, okay. good call there. 
If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, November 30th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Mr. Smith, quickly, I want that door open now. Don, stand over there. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Did you see it? What is it? We got it! I mean, that's the way to start an awards segment. Let's come in with some gusto, with some bravado. Right, Josh? A little <laughs> Bill Murray action. Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters as we get into our Quizats Hatteracks, our 8 from 84 awards. Nine-year-old Adam absolutely would have given all the awards to Ghostbusters, but now we're we're very serious grown-up film critics, and we've put away all those childish things. Or have we, Josh? Have we? I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll see as we get into my picks. Maybe not a lot of Ghostbusters, but probably a few mentions of something else pretty childish. Yeah, I'm expecting that. Now, for those who <laughs> maybe haven't been following along, 8 from 84 is our second in a series dedicated to the best movie years ever. Last year, we honored the 20th anniversary of 1999. We did 9 from 99. This year, we wanted to do something from the 80s, tying in with film spotting madness, so we went with 8 from 84. Of course, we could be rational adults and disagree about maybe what the best movie year of the 80s truly is. But if you do a bit of Googling, you'll find that 1984 gets a lot of love on these types of lists. And we also had a few tie-ins when we were starting the year. So bright-eyed and naive, Josh. Mm -hmm. We were we were so innocent then. We were looking ahead to Denis Villeneuve's Dune and Ghostbusters Afterlife and Wonder Woman 1984. So it really did just make sense to hone in on 84. And of course, now Wonder Woman is the only one of those movies that at this point is scheduled still to come out this year. But I think in retrospect, also, the choice of 84 was a good one because it was really strong year. And we, we've seen evidence of that now that we've rewatched some of these films, as we'll get into with these awards. Yeah. The list of titles in the order we watch them. And we are pulling a little bit of a fast one here. Hopefully our listeners don't mind, Josh, our non-family members out there. We are going to include in the discussion two movies that we talked about as part of our related series, Eight Isn't Enough from 84, where listeners chose these films as review topics for bonus episodes just for our family members. And so we know you haven't heard us maybe talk about these movies if you are not a family member and you don't have access to those episodes, but it just didn't make sense for us to consider the movie year and not include these titles. Yeah, I mean, we wanted to be as comprehensive as we could about it. Obviously, there are still titles from the year that we haven't seen, but the two that we did cover in bonus shows, I think one in particular is probably going mm -hmm. to make some noise in these awards, so it made sense to include them. For sure. So that list is John Carpenter's Starman, kicked things off in February. Then we did one of those bonus reviews of Beverly Hills Cop. We then got to our 84 rock trio in March. Stop making sense. This is Spinal Tap and a blind spot for you, Josh. Prince's Purple Rain. Yeah, I'm partially blind after watching that as well, Adam. <laughs> His purpleness will do that to you. Our 84 blockbuster throwdown followed Ghostbusters versus Gremlins. Then a blind spot for both of us, the encore edition of Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club. We followed that with another blind spot for the two of us, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America. And then the movie you were referencing there, Josh, a few moments ago, Vim Vender's Paris, Texas. That was another mm. listener's choice pick over on Patreon. Finally, these three. 
Milos Forman's Best Picture winning Amadeus, David Lynch's Dune, which we reviewed last week here on the show. Now, in my notes, Sam has written in, we scoffed at. Now, I would say mm. we talked about Dune with an appropriate level of humor. Um, I, I think we gave it the respect it deserves, Adam. Okay, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Finally, of course, on this episode, we talked about Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. Radio listeners, we are often guilty of this. This segment ran a little bit long, so we had to cut a couple of categories for the radio version of the show. To hear the complete episode, along with a lot more talking in general, visit filmspotting.net or find it wherever you get your podcasts. We've listed the titles that we considered eight conversations, actually 10 conversations if you count the two extras, 13 total titles, Josh, as part of this 8 from 84 series. And we're going to start with Best Supporting Performance. The nominees would be, I'll run through these here really quickly, there's a bevy of options from Beverly Hills Cop if you want to go Judge Reinhold or John Ashton or even Ronnie Cox. And then that big ensemble and This Is Spinal Tap, Harry Shearer, June Chadwick, Tony Hendra as Ian, their manager. From Purple Rain, you got Morris Day or Apollonia Cotera. From Ghostbusters, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd. From your beloved Gremlins, Josh, there's Phoebe Cates. The Cotton Club Encore gives us Gregory Hines or Diane Lane, among others. Maybe you actually want to appreciate James Woods in Once Upon a Time in America. You have that option. Or you could go with Nastasia Kinski, Dean Stockwell from Paris, Texas, Elizabeth Barrage as Mrs. Mozart in Amadeus, or finally, Richard Edson or Esther Belint from Stranger Than Paradise. You did just sing the praises, Josh, of Esther Belint during that conversation. Is recency bias going to give her the win for you, or are you going a different direction? I'm going to go a different direction, though I do think it's a great performance. Uh, also, despite my comment about Purple Rain, I really did think about Morris Day. I mean, he's he's not bad himself on stage <laughs> no. with with his own band, The Time. But really, this came down for me to either Dean Stockwell or Natasha Kinski for Paris, Texas. Stockwell was more of the surprise. This was a revisit, as we said, for both of us, Adam, and he was more of a surprise. I had forgotten um, how much he helped make this movie register as, as a parable, really, the gracious way that his Walt gently brings Harry Dean Stanton's Travis back into the family fold. But I had to go with Kinski. I mean, she gets the award, mm -hmm. even though she just has a handful of scenes here, really. It's that peep show confession. I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, some more later in these awards. The journey she takes her character on in that single scene alone, without really, you know, all that much dialogue comparatively mm -hmm. to Travis, um, is just astounding. So, yeah, a lot of good options among all of these films. But for me, it's Natasha Kinski in Paris, Texas. Well, before I tell you how right you are, I'm going to share a little bit of feedback here from a longtime listener of the show and our former PA, Andy Mitchell, who shared his picks, Josh. And he said, thanks again for not just this, but all the marathons this year. I don't take for granted how Betty Davis, Overlooked Auteurs, Christopher Nolan, and the films of the 1980s have kept some semblance of sanity during this period of working from home. Here's hoping that vaccine develops as quickly and safely as possible so we can get back to our favorite theaters. Andy 
in this category, Josh did not go with Esther Belint, but he did go with Richard Edson as Eddie in Stranger Than <laughs> okay. Paradise. Willie's hapless partner in crime gives Jim Jarmusch's cool, austere world so much warmth and thematic heft. On paper, he's hopeless and even a little creepy the way he vies for Ava's attention, but Edson brings him to life with childlike innocence. Just look how happy he is watching that Kung Fu movie. There and you go. <laughs> Andy, Andy makes a good case. So I considered Belint as a runner-up, and I also really do like John Ashton in Beverly Hills Cop, that adversarial relationship that becomes an affectionate one with Eddie Murphy's Axel Foley. But Josh, I'm with you. It's it's definitely Nastasha Kinski in Paris, Texas. And I found a quote from Vendors talking about that scene, and he says that they had basically had a lot of problems making this movie. They ran out of money, and when they shot this scene, with Travis, or those final scenes with Travis, Harry Dean Stanton, and Nasasha Kinski in that peep show, that's when it dawned on vendors that, quote, we were going to touch people in a big way. And he said he was a little scared by the idea. It was ambitious because these scenes Sam Shepard had written were almost like two one-act plays. We treated it like that, Vendor says. We shot it always as a whole. That last scene is 20 minutes long, and that's the maximum length of the film stock. We always started from scratch. If I or any of those actors screwed up, then we would begin again. We always had to do it from A to Z. So, you know, you kind of think of her as having a small role in the film and that we kind of see some home movie footage of her, maybe some photos, and then we don't really meet her at the end, but she's on screen for a significant amount of time and is obviously so crucial to the overall success of the film. And it's in this moment, this peep show confession, where a movie about disconnection finally becomes one about connection, right? With that wall and the glass separating them. And there's a ton of distance between them emotionally and, and even within themselves, the people they once were. But they do their, I think, they see each other, maybe ironically, because they barely can, but they see each other and maybe for the first time really see each other as as individuals. And Kinski has to express all of that love and resentment and regret occasionally verbally. But as you said, mostly as a listener. And at this point in the movie, we have been building up to finally meeting her. We've only heard almost mythical things about her, some positive, some negative. So there's a lot of weight that Kinski has to kind of carry into that scene because we know a significant amount about her. The whole movie is building to that, and she absolutely doesn't disappoint. There's no way that Paris, Texas does have the impact it ultimately has on viewers, certainly had on me as a viewer, without Kinski's performance in those big scenes. It would still be an incredibly well-crafted piece of art, but it wouldn't resonate the way it does emotionally without her and the chemistry she has with Stanton there. He started imagining all kinds of things. Like what? He started thinking that she was seeing other men on the sly. He'd come home from work and accuse her of spending the day with somebody else. He'd yell at her and break things in the trailer. The trailer? Yes. They lived in a trailer home. Excuse me, sir, but were you to visit me the other day? I don't mean to pry. 
and it's kind of on her to make that connection because we already know that he's seeking it, right? He's the one who's found her. He's searched her out. So he's bringing that to her. What we don't know is is how she's going to respond. And she goes through stages um, in that mm-hmm. response, but manages to communicate to us that connection. And you're right about, you know, them meeting each other. But the irony is um, they are distanced even in this enclosed space. It's almost as if they need that barrier. They need that two-way mirror, that wall where things can't get too intense or even Mm -hmm. violent as we've learned they had become in the past. And with, with that between them, they can finally connect. So, so yeah, she's great. So none of those people we just mentioned were nominated for Oscars that year for Best Supporting Performance. As we get to Best Lead Performance, we do actually have three Best Actor nominees. We start with Starman, Karen Allen, and Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges, one of those nominees. Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop. Christopher Guest and Michael McKean in This Is Spinal Tap. David Byrne, more on him in a second in Stop Making Sense. Prince in Purple Rain. Bill Murray, probably the lead in Ghostbusters. Zach Galligan in Gremlins. Please make a case for Zach Galligan. Josh. (laughs) Richard Gere in The Cotton Club. Robert De Niro in Once Upon a Time in America. Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas. F. Murray Abraham or Tom Hulse from Amadeus. Kyle MacLachlan in Dune. Or you could go John Lurie in Stranger Than Paradise. Who's your pick? Well, first, Adam, I I need to know your pick between these two, and you have to choose Zach Galligan in Gremlins, okay, or Kyle MacLachlan in Dune. Who who gets your oh, award out you of those what? two? I know where you're going. I'm going MacLachlan. Okay, all right. Way no, more I'm, charismatic than Zach Galligan. I I might be with you there. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna Galligan. Not a strength of Gremlins. I think we covered that pretty well. All right. So I would actually say the greatest strength of Starman is Karen Allen. At least for me, she was my favorite thing. I think we talked about this. If that conceit of her, you know, falling for this alien who takes the the form of her late husband, if that's going to work at all, it's because she's tapping into her character's grief so strongly that we believe she would she would seek this. And we do. I, I think she's great in it. Robert De Niro, that's one of the ways I think both we both had issues with Once Upon a Time in America, Adam. Um, but we and we agreed on some of those. We didn't agree on De Niro. I really think he's great there. And and no. you found him a little flat. Um, you know, the obvious way to go is either with F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse in Amadeus. And and maybe this is going to be, you know, Abraham got the Oscar, so they didn't cancel each other out there. But uh, it may be unfair that they might be in my estimation here because I'm not going with either of them. I do think Hulse was good in ways that I had forgotten. Um, yeah. There's a lot more subtlety there. I know where there. you're going. We talked about that. You're going that. to Eddie Murphy, aren't you? He's my last runner up. I, I almost I really wanted to go there, Adam, because that was a surprise, too. It was more layered. I think Murphy had had a couple roles up to that point, and he knew how to at this at this stage of the game bring some more to a performance than just the a, a shtick. But no, I'm going to get I'm going to be boring. You know, it's and I promise I'll move on from Paris, Texas eventually. But right now it's Harry Dean Stanton. I just I just think the range mm. In this performance, he's so subtle at first when Travis is almost catatonic, um, and we wonder if we're going to hear anything from him in this movie, but he's still communicating so much to us, right? Um, All the way from that point to the poetic monologue we just talked about. Um, If you look at all of these performances, and I'm even including Hulse and and Abraham, I, I think Harry Dean Stanton had the greatest degree of difficulty in terms of mm. audience interest and sympathy. 
Um, and, and I think he garners both of those for me, at least incredibly, he's, he's nothing less than riveting every second in Paris, Texas. So I'm, I'm sticking there Mm -hmm. for now with Harry Dean Stanton in the lead role. Yeah. It's not a good enough word, but he has to be weird and he has to be detached in a way that's appropriate for the character, but not so kind of off-putting or distancing that we, we stop really caring about him at all or wanting to know what's really going on inside his head. And that, that never happens with Harry Dean Stanton. So he's the runner up for me. And it really was a tough choice. We mentioned Bridges up for an Oscar. Tom Hulse was also nominated for an Oscar. And I do think he's very good in Amadeus, but the other one, the guy who eventually won it, I'm going conventional here, Josh, I'm going to give love to F Murray Abraham. And there are a number of delightful turns of phrase that he has. There are several dramatic line readings we could point to, but like Kinski watching him listen and react is as fun as anything in Amadeus. And I was rewatching some scenes over the weekend and I went to the one where, yeah, sorry. Um, I was rewatching some scenes over the weekend and there's the performance of Martin Aller Artin. This is when the soprano, the real soprano, Katerina Cavalieri is performing as portrayed by Christina Ebersol. And we have just so wonderfully come out of a scene where, F. Marie Abraham Salieri is playing the piano for her, going through her lessons, clearly just totally obsessed with her, but has denied himself the pleasure of really going after her, of course, because of this deal he's kind of made with God in return for what he hopes is musical and artistic greatness. And we go to then her performing on stage in a Mozart musical. And as we watch him from his box recognize the dynamic and what has taken place, what is going on between Mozart and Katerina, you just see how he simply lowers his head slightly and sits forward and it expresses so much. Or the way Abraham notices the way she is singing for Mozart, not really for the audience, for Mozart. And what that portends is that Mozart has stupped her, has has stupped his beloved. And you see it all in his face. An eye roll that we get, a, a can you believe this bullshit kind of hand gesture to uh, another man, an ally in the crowd. It's it's just wonderful to watch. And again, he's just listening and reacting. And I mentioned the the editing out of that previous scene into that one. This whole sequence, Josh, is an editing masterclass too, where we get a combination of point of view shots from his box. So him looking at her and the camera is looking at her from Salieri's point of view, or then seeing Mozart and, and seeing that connection I mentioned, then cutting to shots where we're seeing her perform, but Mozart's framed in the foreground conducting while she sings in a way that, that joins them together. And those close-ups of Mozart's ecstasy. And it's, it's not really her seduction of him because she's already seduced him. I don't know what the word is, but there's something very sensual going on between them. And you just get that, defeated glare that the whole sequence finally culminates with the the show for me 
as much as there's fireworks happening on stage, it's all in Salieri's box and on F. Marie Abraham's face. It's just such an immaculately controlled performance. And I think, you know, in some cases that might not be good because you're seeing so much work. But I think it's perfect here because Salieri is this repressed guy who's almost always trying to seek some sort of control. Right. And so uh, we can see it in, as you said, not only every expression, but every little like pause he takes Mm -hmm. when he is speaking um, or a snarl that that he'll let loose. Uh, Yeah, he's great. No doubt. So here's Andy with his pick, and I can't begrudge him this, Josh. Is David Burnoff limits? I can hear the naysayer out there saying he's not <laughs> acting. He's not playing a character. Okay, but how sure are we of that? Maintaining and supporting a persona has always been a part of Burns' act from the beginning days of Talking Heads, when they deigned to play in typically punk spaces wearing polo shirts and khakis, singing things like Don't Worry About the Government, and kind of meaning it. Ah, but if he means it, is it a performance? The same way Abraham's layered and magnetic portrayal of Salieri is in Amadeus? Is it transformative? I don't know. But Burns' performance is transformative insofar that it transforms audiences from awkward gigglers to full-on dance maniacs. What lead performer carries their film as much as Byrne does. Besides Eddie Murphy in Beverly Hills Cop, if you're looking for a more classic actor playing a role choice, Abraham is Salieri and Amadeus can't be beat. But if you want to be daring, consider David Byrne. And I did, Josh. I'm guessing you did, too, for those reasons. Yeah, I think we should allow it. I, I agree with Andy. Okay, we move on to best performance. I'd forgotten. You've heard all the candidates. What's the one that stands out as maybe a bit of a surprise because you just didn't remember it being that good? Well, let me throw a little Ghostbusters love out here. A movie that I do. I do still like. I had forgotten, you know, how good Rick Moranis is in that movie, how committed he was, I should say, uh, to the silliness in every single scene. I just enjoyed him so much this go around. Uh, but my pick, all right, you're right. We've talked, we've made a few jokes about the acting in Gremlins. Maybe not the strong suit, except, except Francis Lee McCain as Billy's mom. That was the performance I had yeah. forgotten. When I think of Gremlins, you know, it, it's it's all the other stuff that maybe I'll talk about. I did not think of this performance, which, um, you know, it's really one of the more enjoyable elements in the movie. She's really funny here. She at first seems to be this stereotypical, you know, sweet, maybe slightly out of it mom. Um, but that's that's just a cover because she proves to be very resourceful in a scene. I'll talk about later as well. We noted, I think it was, I think it came up in our review, Adam, how um, how many 80s movies she showed up in, mostly as the mom, I think, maybe yeah. as the aunt here or there, but just a number of titles. And so we kind of lived or grew up with Frances Lee McCain on screen and uh, probably underrated her to get to get this little part and really make so much of it. I mean, she contends with, with a lot of craziness in some of the scenes she's in and she's up for it, pulls it off. Um, I'd forgotten about that. Well, you shouldn't be allowed to pick her because you don't properly appreciate Footloose, which she is the mom in as well. Yes, that's true. That's one of her 80s credits. <laughs> so best performance I'd forgotten. I also thought about Ghostbusters. I agree. Rick Moranis, of course, is great. Sigourney Weaver, also very good. And, you know, I really thought about Dan Aykroyd and that kind of begrudging camaraderie he has with Murray's Vinkman, where he kind of seems to almost respect him just because... He's so out there and he's so different than him, while at the same time seems to recognize that he's a total flake. So I like Aykroyd's performance a lot. I also did consider my runner up would be your best actor, Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas, having not seen that movie in 
over 20 years and feeling like I didn't remember much of it and certainly didn't appreciate it on the level I do now, I had overlooked just how great Harry Dean Stanton is. But my winner is going to be someone else you've mentioned, Josh, and that's Karen Allen in Starman. And I think I referenced this quote during our conversation about that movie. Bridges, I think, was referring to Karen Allen when he said it, but I'm pretty sure he's used it in other contexts over the years, too. He says, your part can be the king, but unless people are treating you like royalty, you ain't no king, man. And it's so perfect, right? Because Jeff Bridges' Starman character is only real because of Alan's fear and her wonder and then her love and and even all the sorrow we see. I mean, he's a replica of her dead husband, but he's not her husband. And you do have to believe and be invested in her falling for this alien. And it it's all there. And it only happens because of Alan's performance. I mean, don't get me wrong. Bridges is great as well, but I think she is really the linchpin to the success of Starman. And another quote I found from him recently was that thing you're talking about is something I really aspire to where you don't see the effort. Karen is a good example of an actor that does that. And I think of course, Bridges is right. There is an effortlessness to her performance as Jenny Hayden that is really something. Do they sing a lot where you live? Yes. We sing. Do you ever get hungry? Um, empty here? Like a, a car needs gas? Yes. This body has a terrible emptiness. This is called hungry. Yeah, and when people get hungry, they have to eat food. Eat. Yes, we must do that. We will stop at food station. You have hungry too. Mm, I'm starving. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we're, we're getting to show Karen Allen some more love here because uh, she's just great in Starman. Well, real quick, I do love Andy's pick, Billy Crystal as the mime waiter in This is Spinal Tap. There are so many hilarious little throwaway <laughs> lines from this movie. Andy says that you'd be forgiven for forgetting a few over the years. That said, I can't believe I had forgotten. Mime is money. So Billy Crystal getting some attention as well in our Quizettes Hatteracks. That brings us to the biggest surprise. What do you got? Well, I think we're all surprised, Adam, to learn how folding space worked in Dune. Um, Let's move on from that. I was also surprised, uh, new to me at least, was Lynette McKee in the Cotton Club Encore because I was unfamiliar with her pretty much at all. And she's great as a nightclub singer, especially in that uh, showcase sequence where she performs Stormy Weather. Now, that was excised um, from the theatrical cut, so she's probably going to be a surprise for anyone who watches Cotton Club Encore for the first time. But I went with something, you know, not quite as specific, just the general surprise and relief, honestly, that Beverly Hills Cops still had contemporary relevance. When this was Hmm. voted on by film spotting family members for a bonus show, um, I was a little afraid the racial politics might not play in 2020. But man, I got to say, it was actually sort of liberating uh, to watch Murphy's prankster just call out these white folks for their racism, including other police officers, and repeatedly get away with it. So um, yeah, Beverly Hills Cop still holds up. That that surprised me, and and I'm, I'm glad for it. Yeah. 
No, that's a great choice. Andy here doing the heavy lifting for me. He says, forgive the ignorance, but I was expecting Paris, Texas to be much more confusing and esoteric, you know, given that what I know about Vim Vendors is Wings of Desire and that there is an endurance contest called Until the End of the World. Fortunately, Vim had a shepherd. Another big surprise, Andy concludes, that once upon a time in America would be so toxic. So that's it too. The runner up for me, as I alluded to in our best performance, I'd forgotten category, the powerful brilliance of Paris, Texas was really something striking for me throughout this series. But my winner does have to be, you mentioned it earlier, De Niro's drab performance in the dreary Once Upon a Time in America. I didn't expect either. I didn't expect to not like a De Niro performance. And I certainly didn't expect to dislike that Leone masterpiece as much as I did. And maybe that Leone cut that nobody has ever seen, maybe that unlocks De Niro's brilliance. Maybe maybe that will finally do it for me, Josh. The one we watched, though, where we get this kind of old character and he's a little bit more wistful. And then he's also playing a version of himself that's much younger and allegedly is kind of energetic and ambitious. To me, it feels like De Niro's sleepwalking. And I can't say that about any other De Niro performance that I'm aware of. The best way I could describe it is that it's like watching a performer completely detached from the material, like someone who never fully figured out who his character was, who Noodles was, and yet still had to go through the motions. He just looks so bored to me. And I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not saying that I have any sense of whether or not De Niro was disconnected from that character. That's just the experience for me watching it as a viewer. I, I don't know if you're allowed to go negative uh, in a words, Adam. I, I, I didn't want to. broken a rule, a rule there. I'm glad you said that because it did occur to me that I would much rather sing a movie's praises and talk about a surprise that's positive. But if I'm being honest, the biggest shock of this series was that. So right. that brings us to our final two categories. We have best iconic scene. And we'll spell this out a little bit here. It doesn't necessarily mean the best scene of the series, but we're talking about scenes that as you look back on the cinema year 1984 and you consider these movies, what are the indelible, most memorable moments from these films? When you say the title, a good number of people who hear you say it are immediately going to flash in their head this moment or this scene. Now, that's a little bit subjective, we could all disagree a little bit on what's more iconic from some of these films, but there are a lot of good options here. And you'll probably surprise me with your choice, Josh, but there are films that maybe were included in this marathon that don't have an obvious iconic moment. Starman would probably be one of those. The Cotton Club would be one of those. I even struggled a little bit with Amadeus. I mean, what moment do you pick? Is it the hmm. Don Giovanni sequence or, or what about from Dune? What's the iconic moment from Dune? Is it oh. is it riding the sandworm? Oh, it's it's riding the sandworm. I mean, come on. Okay. What about what about this one? Because Sam and I were playing this game earlier today in our Slack. What's the moment if you were going to have to put the label iconic on it from Stranger Than Paradise? I mean, maybe the three of them looking out at the lake uh, during the the wintry snowstorm. That was but, mine. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know that a movie. I mean, we'll get into this with my picks. I don't know that a movie like that can have an iconic moment, right? It's it's kind of against the whole spirit of an independent, even if it's a breakout. So. Right. Yeah. But that was it for me. There 
finally taking in what should be this grand kind of vista looking at the lake, right? And of course, it's just frozen over and it's it's all white and you really can't distinguish it from anything. And they're freezing cold. That was the moment I thought of. Sam thinks it's definitely one of the Screamin' Jay Hawkins moments. So Ava walking down the street, listening to it or sure. dancing to it. And Sam, as usual, is probably right. But let's get to the choices we did make here. What's your favorite iconic scene from this series? Well, I think you were right on when you said, if you hear the title, what do you think of? And so one I strongly consider didn't go with, but is Purple Rain from Purple Rain, right? That's what you're, That's where you're going to go. Um, so I did give that some consideration. And really any number, I think, from Stop Making Sense, you could make a case for as an iconic scene. This, you know, Spinal Tap's got the amp going up to 11. That's probably what most people think of. It's one I considered. And this is related to what we were talking about with uh, Stranger Than Paradise. Can you have a an iconic scene from an art film like Paris, Texas? I mean, with our listeners, mm. yes, we probably could. And it would probably be the Peep Show confession sequence we've already spent time on. But I don't know if that represents 1984. So I went with microwaved gremlin. Here's my gremlin's pick. It's Francis Lee McCain's big <laughs> moment. And I think it's it's just the movie's most inspired moment of black comedy, intricate puppetry, uh, and social commentary, right? Where you have this supposedly docile housewife who turns her domestic tools into these weapons against these little demons. Um, that's 1984 at the movies to me. It's when I think about that year and that era, it's what pops to mind. And I think it holds up too, just as its own um, piece of cinema. I mean, that the microwave ding at the end of that scene is mm-hmm. probably the punchline of the yeah. year. So my iconic scene, microwaved gremlin. Okay, so when I was thinking about candidates from Gremlins, I thought about the whole Dory's Tavern sequence, watching Snow White, of course, at the theater. But the kitchen yes. battle, the kitchen battle is also my favorite sequence in all of Gremlins. So I think it's a fantastic choice, Josh. Andy here again showing how smart he is. He says this: the best overall scene has to be Travis meeting his wife at the Peep Show in Paris, Texas. Beautifully written, beautifully staged. Beautifully performed, it truly has everything you want in cinema. If we're talking iconic in the sense that it's something that's truly become shorthand for cinephiles or something that you might have seen referenced or parodied before you saw the film, Andy says you got to go with Psycho Killer and stop making sense. So this sets up my pick here perfectly, Josh, because when I first just breezed through these categories and wrote down the first thing that came to mind, the winner was hands down the Peep Show Confession from Paris, Texas. But Especially once I landed on Kinski for the best sporting performance pick, I wanted to spread the wealth around a little bit. And the more I thought about Iconic, I did decide that it really did have to come down to, and you mentioned Princess Purple Rain, it had to be a three-way rock icon battle. Performance scenes, Princess Purple Rain, Stonehenge from Spinal Tap, or, <laughs> okay. or something from Stop Making Sense. And mm-hmm. then there were a bunch of options there. So Psycho Killer, Andy's Choice, I love it because it's my favorite song in the entire show. But as much as I love the deconstructed approach to it, I'd prefer not to be complicit in what David Byrne has done such a masterful job of doing throughout his career, which is marginalizing the contributions of the other band members. Okay, that's kind of his solo moment to shine. As I thought about the moments, not just from Stop Making Sense, but out of all of these movies... That seemed to me, Josh, the the moments that if you were putting together a montage of the scenes that supposedly defined 1984 on screen, mm-hmm. 
Stop Making Sense has two key ones. They're in the conversation for if you had to at least just come up with the first five that come to mind. I think there's two from Stop Making Sense that you have to consider. It's Burn in the oversized suit, which is during the performance of Girlfriend is Better, or it's his spasm and palm-to-the-head forehead dancing in Once in a Lifetime. And what clinched it for me was imagining this hypothetical montage being made and realizing that the song they would probably pick to cut the montage to, it's a good chance it's once in a lifetime, right? doesn't matter what other 80s movies you're showing. You're probably going to pick that song. And furthermore, there's a good chance that that's true if it's a montage not just from the year 84, but of the cinema of the whole decade a song that could be used to kind of sum up that entire decade. I referenced these lines earlier, but you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile and you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? When you think about Reagan era excesses, what better expression of it is there than that? And I did read some interviews today and Byrne has dismissed that notion that, that his song was this sociopolitical commentary or mm. that he was trying to be prophetic about the decade, he said it is what it is. In his words, we're largely unconscious. You know, we operate half awake or on autopilot and end up whatever with a house and family and job and everything else. And we haven't really stopped to ask ourselves, how did I get here? I don't think Burns being coy or, or difficult as an artist trying to, you know, reject the common interpretations of his work. I completely buy that that's what Lifetime is about for him. But on some level, Josh, isn't it just all semantics. I mean, if we're operating on autopilot and that leads us to seek the house and the family and the job, then we are talking about conventional societal notions of happiness, of success, the accumulation of objects or other aspects of status that we absolutely can assign to the 80s. Maybe not exclusively to that decade. It's not like it just stopped when the calendar turned to 1990, but certainly pervasively in the 80s. I think we can point to it. So for me, it's once in a lifetime from Stop Making Sense as the iconic moment of 84. You may ask yourself, what is that beautiful house? You may ask yourself, where does that highway lead to? You may ask yourself, am I right? Am I wrong? You may say to yourself, my God, what have I done? Yeah, I think, like I said, any, any song from the film would work, but that's that's a really good place to land uh, with that one. That's that's just a highlight, absolutely. Okay, so for Best Picture, the film we ultimately loved the most, appreciated the most, we do this in the form of our final ranking. So all 13 movies that we watched, putting them in order, let's hear yours. So it's Paris, Texas. I mean, it's it's weird because this was my revelation, even though I'd seen it before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just it had not connected with me, even though I liked it um, the first time as much as it did this time. I mean, it's as gorgeously shot and scored as I remember, Robbie Mueller with the cinematography, just giving us these fluorescent signs and these vast landscapes and that Ry Cooder music, that exhausted music. I remember that being so great, but 
man, did this really hit home as a, a laconic reimagining of the parable of the prodigal son for me. And I, and it shot, honestly, Adam, it shot right to the top of my best of 1984 list overall because we we did this um, a mm-hmm. while back. I'm trying to yeah. think it was show... May 2017, 636. There you go. There you go. And, um, I, you know, it was not in my top five. And now after the second viewing, it's right there. Um, you know, at number two, actually, you know, it'd be, it'd be in the top spot, Adam, if it wasn't for this, this certain sweater wearing serial killer who I know haunts your dreams. Um, (laughs) so yeah, appreciated it more, maybe not enough to knock off Nightmare on Elm Street, but man, am I glad film spotting family members, uh, at Patreon voted for this as a a bonus show, because I think we would have just kind of breezed right past it, um, and not really reckoned with it in the ways that we have. Um, and, um, it's a good thing I did cause it's my favorite film of the series. Okay. Let's hear the rest of the picks though. Two through 13. Okay. Two through 13. So yeah, here's where to go back to that top five that we did a couple years ago. I did have Nightmare on Elm Street. Stop Making Sense was there at number two. Gremlins three. This is Spinal Tap four. And then I had Miyazaki's Nausicaa Valley of the Wind at five. So a little shifting here, as I mentioned, um, You know what didn't crack the top five, though, Adam? Dune. I've got Dune in the last spot. Probably no surprise. It's, you know, the one, the only one I really gave a negative review to. Starman and Purple Rain, those come after it, kind of paired together. Had issues with both, but did end up liking both. Then jump ahead to Once Upon a Time in America and the Cotton Club. They're kind of in their own tier. Middle of the pack here is Ghostbusters. Still like it quite a bit. Still enjoy it. And then here's a crowded group that um, is in the second to the top tier. Amadeus, Stranger Than Paradise, Beverly Hills Cop, This Is Spinal Tap, and then Gremlins. Now, at the top of the show, you mentioned you know the masterpiece word, Adam, and from what I've seen of 84, here are the two I'm going to put there. Stop Making Sense and Paris, Texas at the top. Okay. Can't argue with that, even if we have a slightly different order. As we've been mentioning Andy's picks here, I'd be remiss if we didn't do his top five quickly. Stranger Than Paradise, five. This is Spinal Tap, four. Paris, Texas, three. Amadeus, two. And Stop Making Sense, the best concert film, period, he says, is in the number one spot. So like you, I went back to that list from May 2017. And a lot of the films that ended up being in this 8 from 84 series were represented. My number one at the time, this is Spinal Tap. Number two, Amadeus. Number three, Stop Making Sense. Number four, going nostalgia here, Barry Levinson's The Natural. And number five, I had Ghostbusters. After doing this series, Josh, the only significant change there at the top is that Paris, Texas slots in at number three. And this was so hard. So I'll I'll go ahead and jump back and we'll do the countdown down to one. For me, the film that I was most negative on in this series, I don't care what its critical acclaim is, Once Upon a Time in America at number 13. Doom, slightly ahead of it. You have not gotten enough crap for for going uh, negative on Once Upon a Time in America, I got to say. You're getting away with one there. Not that I think it's a great There's film. There's been some emails. There's been some emails, Josh. Worse than Dune. Worse than Dune, huh? Most people don't have 27 hours to watch Once Upon a Time in America. They haven't seen it, so they can't tell me <laughs> I'm wrong. Yeah, Dune is actually the movie of the two. I use the simple criterion, which one would I rather watch again? And no, it has nothing to do with mm. the running time. I'd rather watch a longer Dune than Once Upon a Time in America. Number 11, The Cotton Club. Number 10, Purple Rain. Number 9, Gremlins. And I like Gremlins, but this is then where we jump up. 
it was hard, but again, nostalgia, maybe here playing a factor, Starman at seven, just beating out the Jarmish Stranger Than Paradise. Beverly wow. Hills Cop, yeah, Beverly Hills Cop at six, Ghostbusters at five, Stop Making Sense at four, Paris, Texas at three, Amadeus two, and this is Spinal Tap one. It, it is so difficult, Josh, because there are three movies in this series that I gave five stars to that I consider masterpieces. So Spinal Tap, Amadeus, Paris, Texas, and then Stop Making Sense is just right behind those three. You can basically flip a coin, move them into that top slot. It doesn't matter to me. I just know that the movie, whether it's the greatest achievement or not, the greatest cinematic achievement, they're so different, right? Paris, Texas is this wonderful art house film. Amadeus, the big best picture winner that delivers in every moment, every scene for me. And then this is Spinal Tap. It just comes down to it being, for me, an essential film, a movie I can't imagine life without. One of the funniest movies ever made, maybe my favorite comedy ever made, my favorite movie about rock and roll ever made, and obviously incredibly influential in terms of the mockumentary format. So for that reason, I'm going with Spinal Tap. Yeah, I mean, all, all three of those make sense in there. The one that surprises me is Ghostbusters hanging on there in the top five after after Number seeing five. a lot of this other stuff. Um, you know, again, I like it. I, I think it overall holds up, but yep. the top five, okay. Yeah, nostalgia may be playing a role there as well, but I still was very high on it as we discussed it this time around. For the complete 8 from 84 lineup along with all those award winners, just go to filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84 or click on lists at the top of the page and you can find your way there. Next year, we're thinking we're going to continue this series. I don't know if we should just continue the pattern. 9 from 99, 8 from 84 is 7 from the 70s. Next, Josh? Yeah, I think we should do it. And as we've already proven, the number of the title number is irrelevant. I mean, we're, we're going <laughs> to yeah. do yeah. however It'll many be movies we want from the 70s, right? There and you go. It will be so hard. Now, I, I did just for our listeners so they know when we did our best movie years ever top five, I think a few years ago, somehow I didn't pick any year from the 70s, even though it's overall my favorite cinematic decade. You did have one year on there, maybe 74, which if it was, would, of course, make sense. But there's at least five other years from the 70s that I could understand a case for. I don't know how we're ever going to narrow it down. So I'm really going to put it on listeners. If you have any suggestions, any strong feelings about which year we should focus on from the 70s, we would love to hear it. You can send those comments or any other comments about this show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also send us suggestions on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And that's also where you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking who made the best 80s directing debut. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, Mangrove. This is part of the five-part series about the Caribbean experience in England that Steve McQueen directed for the BBC. This one comes to Amazon Prime. Run is also out. This is Anish Shaganti's follow-up to 2018 Searching with Sarah Paulson as a mom with a dark secret. That's on Hulu. And 
another music movie that I'm really looking forward to. The Sound of Metal is out in limited release ahead of its digital release. Riz Ahmed as a rock drummer who begins to lose his hearing. Next week, we will have our Thanksgiving Golden Brick special. Share our candidates and maybe our finalists for our coveted Golden Brick Award, our annual award that goes to our favorite film of the year by a new or emerging director. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.